It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome to Money for Lunch. I am in a a very, uh, what do you call it, uh, silly mood. Uh, and for no other reason that uh, I had a, uh, a uh, what do you call it, uh, glorious workout this morning, which always gets me in a great mood. I was able to, I felt as though I pushed myself a little bit more. Uh, and that's really what... Uh, at least one of the things that makes life better, right? Um, there is, um, what do you call it? At least, in, at least in, in uh, my short time here on planet Earth, it seems like when we push ourselves, maybe we push ourselves out of our comfort zone and we try something that we've never tried. Maybe it's public speaking. Maybe it's doing that video. Maybe it's doing a podcast or writing an article or, you know, something. Along those lines, uh, it's scary, but yet it also gives us power and, and makes life that much juicier. Does that make sense? All right. Today, today's quote, I should say, today's quote of the day, only I can change my life. No one can do it for me by Carol Burnett, one of my favorite people on planet Earth. Only I can change my life. No one can do it for me. Carol Burnett. All right. We have uh, Karen Dillon on the show today. And Karen Dillon is the co-author of The Prosperity Paradox with Professor Clayton Christensen and Ifosa Ojomo. I hope I got that remotely close. (laughs) She is the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. And also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, best-selling book, How Will You Measure Your Life? She was named by Akosha as one of the world's most influential and inspiring women. Karen Dillon, welcome to Money for Lunch. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. And, and let's, let's talk about this. I mean, one of the world's most influential and inspiring women. How about that? <laughs> all, all such things are, you know, lovely gestures. You can't take them seriously, but it was awfully nice to be named that. I don't know. I mean, I think it is. Uh, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, you can't, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, get too crazy about it, but it is uh, something that, you know, they're not just throwing these out to anybody. It, it was an honor to be there. It was, I think, for my work as the editor of Harvard Business Review and my work uh, with Clayton Christensen. But um, I'm, I'm honored to have been named that, and I hope I certainly haven't haven't let the list down in the years since then. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's see. I uh, I am excited uh, because you know one of uh, one of my favorite books by. And, and, and uh, by Clayton Christensen is, uh, uh, my goodness, where did it go? I had it here so I how, could brag how, about how it. How will you measure your life, possibly? Is it that one? Uh, 
yeah, I guess yeah, I guess it is that one. Yeah, it just seems like there was because uh, you guys are coming out with another one as well, right? Faye and I have written three books together. We have one out just now, but How We Measure Your Life is seven came out seven years ago. Okay, so yeah, it is that one. It is a very very good read. I think it just makes you think deeply. Um, and what's interesting to me is that the book says that uh, it's not all innovation. Uh, that not all innovation is created equal. And so I want to start with that. What do you mean by not all innovation is created equal? Sure. So let me um, just give your listeners a little bit of background. So, so Clayton Christensen is a professor at Harvard Business School who is probably most well-known for something called the theory of disruptive innovation. Um, it's a 20-year-old uh, theory that he created that explains why uh, established companies are so vulnerable to upstart competitors who come in at a less expensive um, and affordable uh, model. Um, so for people associate Clay with innovation, the idea of innovation, as particularly disruptive innovation. But in the years since then, he's been thinking a lot about, well, when we say innovation, what do we mean? And innovation can do different things for companies. Um, and so in his own uh, process of understanding the impact of innovation on a company, he began to look more broadly on what do we know about what innovation does for both a company and an economy. And so the idea is that Clay categorizes innovation in three different ways, what he calls sustaining innovation, efficiency innovation, and market-creating innovation. And what those terms each mean are sustaining innovation is, is what you would typically see from any company trying to keep its uh, customers. Uh, new colors, new models, heated seats in your car, you added bells and whistles so that you might upsell to the next level product or uh, you want the new phone. That, that's sustaining innovation. I will sustain you as my customer and I'll sustain my market share. That's a normal good thing for companies to do to make sure they don't slip back. They continue to sort of hang on to where they are. There are efficiency innovations, which are how can we um, create, make this product or service a little less expensive, be more efficient in, how, in what we spend to, to make it or create it so that we free up capital so we can invest that in other things. Efficiency innovation, also kind of good practice by any company, is trying to be more efficient with your, with your capital. That's where you see things like outsourcing manufacturing to Mexico or to Asia. That's an attempt to make that product or service more efficiently and uh, free up some capital to invest in other things. Those are what companies tend to default to with their growth is just kind of a little bit of keeping on track, but they're not going to be big swings. The third category is what Clay's been particularly interested in is where does real growth come from? And he says it comes from something called market-creating innovation, which is basically there wasn't even a market here before. We're going to not only create a product or service, we're going to create a whole market, and that has the potential to create enormous new growth, not just incremental growth for a company, but also, as we talked about in this most recent book, The Prosperity Paradox, but also create growth for that local economy. It is where jobs are created. It is where infrastructure is pulled in. Uh, the sort of knock-on effects from market, successful market-creating innovation can be quite profound. So the focus of this book is where, how market-creating innovation could actually play a significant role, not only in helping companies find new areas of growth, but helping economies and regions that are not doing so well find uh, the path to prosperity. Yeah, and you know what, and there's so much that I love about this book, uh, and, and uh, I'm, I'm almost sad that we have such a short amount of time, but this book, I think, 
is something that, and I don't say this about about all about all the books I read, but this is certainly a book that everyone should read, whether or not you're in business, because there's a lot to it uh, in this book uh, that it's not just applicable to business; uh, it's also applicable to. I, I think family. I mean, you know, again, the, the name of the book is How Will You Measure Your Life? So I, it's it's got a lot of great stuff for business, but I think it also has some great stuff about family. Sure. So so, so that the idea of that book um, was basically Clay's sort of last lecture that he gives to his students uh, when he finishes teaching a, a class at the end of the semester. And the, the premise of it is I have spent all semester giving you my best theories, my best thinking for how to make the decisions in your, in your business going forward in your job. But uh, I have seen far too many people um, choose to make focus all of their energy and attention and our best thinking only on business decisions and then find themselves increasingly unhappy with their life. And so the idea of the, of the final class is make sure you use our best thinking to have a better life too, not just to make better decisions for your job. And so it's very powerful to see that, that this does apply. A lot of what sound like a surprising business concepts actually apply very well to how we proceed in our life in terms of how we find satisfaction in our careers, how we find the right balance of work-family balance, whatever that means to us, and how we maintain our integrity. Uh, and so that becomes a very powerful way, a, a sort of new set of lenses to think about the choices you're making outside of the work choices you're making that will profoundly affect you and your life and all the people in your life. So it's a very significant, uh, hopefully a tool for people to think through these things. Yes. And what's, uh, I'm not going to give it away, but, uh, there are some people uh, that uh, that uh, I think graduated along with Clay, and who had who had gone on to do great and amazing things, and then because of life choices, they ended up having horrible. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I don't want to say end of story because they're, they're you know these people are still alive, but some of them ended up. Uh, where they didn't want to end up. I'll just say it like that. I don't want to give it away completely, but get the book. It's an amazing, it's an amazing read. So, all right, so let's talk about this because what we're, uh, the book, by the way, I want to give this out again, uh, is how will you measure your life available on Amazon and uh, wherever good books are sold. Um, in this book, uh, there are some inspiring stories about what entrepreneurs have been able to accomplish in challenging conditions, and I want to take a couple of minutes and have you talk about that and maybe pick out a story or two that you like to maybe uh, tell the audience about. Sure. So, um, so in the most recent book, we focused on just market-creating innovation in parts of the world that you would think were hopeless, you know, not fertile territory for innovation and entrepreneurship and, and new ideas, but in spite of that, the amazing um, market-creating innovations, businesses, ideas, concepts have been have been created and succeeded. Um, so the idea is that places that that perhaps with uh, a, a very a Western set of eyes, you would say there's no way you could build a company in that region of the world or a product in that region of the world. We have found that that not only can you, but you can be incredibly successful because you can identify really a gaping market need, uh, uh, something that 
that local consumers and then increasingly scale it don't have any access to and really need something to, to solve a struggle in their life and create a product or a service to do that for them. And there is enormous potential growth. Uh, so let me give you one of my favorite examples in the book. There's a company called MicroInsure, um, which basically has found a way to sell insurance to the people in the world who all of the actuarial tables would tell, would tell us are the highest risk people in the world. They live in uh, impoverished parts of the world, parts of India and parts of Africa. They uh, are insuring them against things that we would consider uninsurable in some ways, you know, AIDS, uh, natural disasters. They, they have found a way to create a market for people who probably need insurance more than anybody because a single devastating event, a fire at your shop or store, um, someone in your family, the breadwinner, you know, dying of a deadly disease like AIDS, AIDS, uh, something, a natural disaster somehow happening in your region, those, would, those, are, those are often unrecoverable events. But this company has figured out that, okay, we don't have to necessarily look at it with, with classic insurance eyes. We can sell for very low amounts of money or free through a mobile phone company that wants to entice customers to buy uh, more minutes. And a giveaway is you can get some form of insurance for the month. We, we create a market for a product that people never even probably knew about or certainly thought about having by offering it in a different way. It's part of the giveaway from the mobile phone company that wants you to buy, you know, another dollar or $2 worth of minutes. And in those economies, in those locations, the $50 as a payout for an insurance claim would be extraordinarily significant. So it doesn't have to be, you know, hundreds and thousands and whatever we would expect here, being able to get $50 for being hospitalized for two days may mean the difference between you having to sell all of your possessions to get treated or get your child treated uh, in a hospital or in a private clinic if you don't have any ability to get into a public hospital in some of these countries because they're so poor and under-resourced. That might mean you can save your child's life. So rethinking the idea of insurance in what would seem to be the most extremely unlikely insurance market in the world has been incredibly successful. They have millions and millions of customers now as a result of thinking about, well, what does it really mean to insure someone and can we think about it differently, creating innovation? Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I like what you said there that it doesn't have to be a big, you know, uh, payout thousands of dollars. It, it could be 50 bucks. And depending on where you're at, $50 could seem like a thousand dollars or $5,000. And I mean, that, that particular product um, came out of a really personally painful story that the founder had witnessed. He met a mother who had told him this when he was, when he was, he was British, but he was, had spent a lot of time on the continent of Africa and India. And he met a mother who told this the heartbreaking tale of bringing her child to whatever the local hospital was, which still took her a lot, you know, a long time to get there. Local was still, you know, many hours or days journey away. She got her child to the hospital, but there were no medical personnel to be found. And they were in the hallway, just the waiting area for two days, nothing, not wow. seen by anybody, not offered any services. And in desperation, she asked clerks or others there, you know, is there any alternative? And they said, well, there is a private clinic, you know, X, X miles away, but they will charge you, I think it was $5 to, to be admitted, to, to admit your child. And so this woman was desperate. Her child was dying, clearly. So she left her child there in that public hospital while she went home to sell possessions so she could raise the $5. She got back. 
And by the time she got back, her child had died. And mm. it was just an unacceptable situation. And can we not find a better way? So the idea of this payment, $50, um, sounds like nothing to us, but that would mean the difference. Even if she had to borrow money for two days, knowing she could repay it, she wouldn't have to sell all of her possessions. She could find a way to get that money, get her child admitted, changed her life. That would have saved her life, child's life potentially. So it's the idea of market creating innovation is thinking very differently about what is, you know, what does it have to be? Affordable and accessible. It doesn't have to be the perfectly developed bells and whistles version of everything. It gives people an opportunity to have that product or that service when they otherwise couldn't get it. And that's a really great example of how differently you have to think. Yeah. And, and also, it's unfortunate, but sometimes out of these personal crises or tragedies is how innovation is inspired. Well, it's true. I mean, great innovation is often from a, a struggle, a personal struggle often. We see it ourselves, we feel it ourselves, we know it ourselves, or we can see it and identify it around us. And so it doesn't, great innovation doesn't always have to be some fabulous high-tech, you know, gizmo or, or, or new technology that we don't understand. The innovation, the foundation of a good innovation is helping people solve something that they're struggling with. And, and we can see struggles. It's not, it, does, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see struggles. You just have to be looking for them. How you solve them, what's required, how you make it affordable and accessible, that's part of the magic of what you need to do to be successful. But if you identify the struggle and understand it, that's the starting point of a lot of great innovation. Sure, sure. I also want to mention this. Uh, you guys have just, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have released another book that I didn't mention in the intro, but my producer is now saying, hey, you didn't mention this in the intro, uh, and, and that is Competing Against Luck. Is that right? That's right. That was, uh, I worked on that with Clay a couple of years ago, it came out about two years ago, and that is a, that is a book in a vein that's looking at on in their mind, how they choose. And if you understand that, you're more likely to create that they're going to want. It's, it's what Clay calls the theory of jobs to be done. What people are really looking to do is not to, I'm not trying to buy a table. What I really want is to show, show off to my friends and family, my, you know, full old fashioned uh, record player so that I can, I can have the joy of having people come and want to hang out in my house because it's, be there. It's just bigger and more complicated, has emotional pieces and social pieces than just I want a table to put something on top of. There's all there's always something more going on. And if you understand what that person is trying to accomplish, a job to be done, then you can innovate successfully to meet that that struggle or that need or that desire. Gotcha. Yeah. So so that reminds me of the milkshake chapter in how will you measure your life because and you correct me if i'm wrong in there it gives a great example of why did you hire that milkshake for right and it and it's a great example of that yeah and so i've never thought about this and so i'm gonna again you uh i should probably let you go ahead and tell the 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 story of uh, of why people hired a milkshake and if you're a marketer if you're an owner of a company you need to listen to this because to me this was like a big aha I just I not only did I love this story but I started thinking everything differently when I started 
uh, thinking about marketing, and, and I shared this with, my, with our mastermind group and everything else. So why don't you quickly tell everybody the milkshake, what did I hire the milkshake for story? Sure. So that, that was the beginning of this whole line of work to understand the job to be done and where that theory came from. But uh, Clay was working with a, another guy called Bob Mesta, who was part of the architect of this whole theory. Um, and they were trying to understand something that, that they had seen happening in um, a local fast food store, called a national chain, but in one particular store, where for some strange reason, a lot of people were buying, or for some reason they didn't understand, a lot of people were buying milkshakes in the morning. You know, what would be the breakfast rush time? They'd come in and ask for a milkshake, and they weren't necessarily prepared or geared up, and suddenly it seemed like we're selling more milkshakes than you would expect in the morning. So what's, what's going on? What do we need to understand about this? And they, and they stayed in the store and watched people come in, come and go, and they tried to figure out, is there a common demographic? Are they all women? Are they men? Are they all of a certain age? Do they drive certain cars? Something that suggests a socioeconomic racket. They could not pinpoint any one thing that explains the diversity of people who came in to purchase a milkshake at 7.30 or 8 in the morning. So they scratched their head, and they're like, so none of our traditional tools for understanding who to market to, you know, we're marketing to moms or we're marketing to, to men, work. Let's think of a different way to try to get at this. Let's, let's ask them, if you, the people buying the milkshake, if you came in here today and decide, or if you decided not to come in here today, what else would you have done instead of buying a milkshake? What, what was that competing with in your mind? And you might have expected them to say, well, a smoothie or something you know, similar, but they answered a whole range of things. It was, well, uh, I might have had a bagel, but, you know, bagels can be dry. It's hard to smooth it over with cream cheese when I'm driving the car. Or I might have had a candy bar, but then I kind of you get the chocolate bits on you when you're driving. And, um, you know, and I feel guilty the second I finish the candy bar and it goes really quickly. Or I might have had a banana, you know, banana, but you finish that in seconds and then you get that banana peel in your car. And they started to piece together that what was happening was not that it was this milkshake was competing against, you know, other, other you know, smooth sipping products or coffee. It was basically being hired, the language that, that we use, was being hired by this wide range of people to do the same job. So the people were different, but the job they were hiring was very similar. They basically wanted something to make their morning commute more interesting. So when you're driving to work and you know you're going to be stuck in the car and probably stuck in traffic, it was the perfect way to kind of treat themselves. You can hold it in one hand. You can put it in the cup holder. You can convince yourself it's vaguely healthy because there's milk in it. Um, so it's competing with other things you might have for that same breakfast job in your car, which don't make the commute more interesting. They create problems, trying to eat a bagel while you're driving or open a banana and have the smelly banana peel. So there was a little bit of self-soothing. There was a little bit of, you know, no one has to see me have this. I could leave it in my car and I'll get away with it. And it also, you know what, it's just thick enough and it takes long enough for me to drink this that it makes my commute go by more quickly. So the job that they were hiring this milkshake for wasn't anything to do with filling me up or, you know, instead of coffee. It was help me make my commute more interesting when it's so boring and I maybe want to nurse and treat myself a little bit in the morning before I get in for another day of work. So when you change the way you think about that, you start to understand, okay, so how might we improve uh, what we offer in the milkshake as opposed to who are we marketing to? You're improving the response to their job to be done rather than simply trying to identify who is the dream customer. There's no dream customer. The dream customer is anyone that has this same job to be done. And the more you understand the job to be done, 
the more likely you are to offer improvements and find ways to innovate for them than if you're just thinking about how can we appeal to middle-aged moms. Yeah, yeah, and I love this idea of thinking about the job because, and again, the story is such a great example of, uh, you know, as marketers, you're trying to uh, figure out how to, you know, what do you call it, get, get, get more people to buy. And, and, you know, and sometimes we look at the bells and the whistles and, and as opposed to this very kind of a simple yet not necessarily easy thing, why did somebody hire this milkshake or why uh, did somebody hire this, you know, uh, what do you call it? The, it's the old, uh, 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 what do you call it? The old example of hiring a drill bit. You know, they really don't want to buy a drill or a drill bit. They, they really are hiring it to make that hole. They really want the hole. So how can we, you know, help them do that quicker, better, faster? The other thing that I thought was, was neat is along the lines of the milkshake story, you know, in the book, you guys also talk about why kids, what job the kids see school as is that right? Did I is that even right? Okay, right. right. So so because it, and again to me this is another aha moment where where uh, the uh, you know we as parents think that kids are going to school because they want to be educated and and be smart and I'm sure that there's a small degree of of kids that do that but for the large majority they go to school to socialize. Well, that's right. That's what you're trying to do is identify what is the job to be done. And so maybe I think what, you know, I think what we say in the book is whether it's the right answer or not is that, that people want to feel successful in something, in some way when yes. they go to school. So if they feel successful because they're popular or because they achieve something in school, if you're aware that that's how they're, that's how they're gauging whether or not that day was worthwhile, then you can start to see what you're competing with, right? That's why you look at competing with, you know, in the worst case scenario, gangs or people dropping out to have jobs. If they're not feeling successful in all the ways you can, with, with in academic ways and social ways, um, even in just what you're accomplishing every day, you're going to look for alternatives that solve your job in a better way. And they may not be what society says is a better way, but that's what they're struggling with. They're trying to feel successful. So uh, if you're not conscious that that is a, a, an every human need and the way you feel successful can vary, then you're going to be competing with a pretty wide set of competitors, not all of whom are good for either the kid or for society, but can offer a solution to the struggle of I need to feel successful every day. Yeah. And, and really that need to feel successful is huge, right? Uh, this I mean, it's is, universal for all of us, right? We all want that every day. None of us want to spend our day feeling like it didn't matter a bit. I didn't accomplish anything. There's not, nothing I was good at today. We can understand that feeling. And when you're kids and you have so little control of your life, if the, if the, the profound message you get every day is, I am not successful, I cannot succeed at this, I'm not good at anything, uh, you start to hear that. And, and it takes itself, uh, it manifests itself in some painful ways. Yeah, yeah. And, and, if if you look at why kids drop out of school, they're they're not dropping out of school because they're feeling successful and feeling good about themselves. They generally drop out of school because they don't feel successful. They don't feel like they can 
understand the we call it the subject matter or matters and, and, and maybe they're struggling and, and they just feel overwhelmed and you know bottom line is they're looking for some place to go where they can feel successful and that might be uh you know wherever that might be it might be gang related might be just uh walking around the mall and not having to uh what do you call it feel embarrassed or or having to explain why they're not uh, making the grade and so it, it's an, i think it's a great concept that we all need to be aware about it could be on a video game. We all know kids, right? They spend a mm. long time in their room on video games. I'm a winner here. I'm good at that. I'm at X level. And, and that's, that's human. That's, you, know, you can't blame the kids because if this is the place that they feel su- most successful, they're going to gravitate towards it. So you need to find ways for them to feel successful at the things that are actually healthiest for them in the long run. That's the challenge. Is that's where the innovation can be is how do I feel successful at school or whatever version of school is going to get me to a better place in life. Yes, absolutely. All right. So the latest book is called The Prosperity Paradox. And I apologize for jumping around all over the place, but uh, The Prosperity Paradox is your latest book. And, and, I, and I have not received my review copy. Uh, oh, so so uh, uh, again, I'm being corrected. My producer just told me it was emailed to me. So I apologize. Uh, I have not read it. Uh, so, but okay. So let's go back to this: the prosperity paradox. What is the prosperity paradox? So that refers to the idea that what we see in the world is sort of signs of suffering and pain: uh, lack of resources, typically lack of water, lack of education, lack of healthcare. You, know, you can see it in, in, in impoverished communities around the world is our instinct is to provide those, those resources. Let's give them water. Let's give them education. Let's give them health care. Those, those things are all good things. How could they be bad? But in reality, we know from years and years of, of doing the same thing over and over again, providing resources to impoverished communities seldom changes the scenario long term. It, does, it may ease poverty in the short term, but it doesn't generate prosperity. It doesn't become its self-sustaining engine. You, efforts like that ebb and flow with you know, budgets and corporate social responsibility priorities and, and, and UN budgets. And there, there, there's too much left to chance, and it's only as successful in the short term as the funding and the will to make it successful. So the paradox is what we often do and what seems most natural to try to solve these terrible problems of poverty is throw resources at it. In reality, we know from studying, you know, centuries of of where prosperity comes from, where formerly impoverished communities, economies uh, became very strong and prosperous communities is that what we talked about earlier, the mark creating innovation, creating innovations that can take root in a community can begin to create jobs to what we say pull in instead of being pushed onto you with resources being thrown at you. That it, once it's required, a community will pull in infrastructure and healthcare and education when there's a, there's a sort of business reason that it has to be there and has to be sustained that in time that uh, creating market creating innovations create the prosperity that what our instinct tells us to do, throw money at a problem, uh, does not. So the paradox is that the thing we tend to want to do is not the thing that really changes the game in the long term. And it doesn't have to be outrageously expensive. I, I remember years ago, there was a small tribe 
or village in Africa where some the, the experiment the experiment was to uh, help people help the village by allowing uh, I believe allowing anybody who wanted to to get uh, a goat or two uh, and, and so if I remember correctly the, the this group of people they raised some funds they bought a bunch of goats and they delivered the goats to the individuals in this village and uh, if I'm not uh, if, if I remember my details correctly, they, they delivered a, both a male and female goat. Uh, nature took its course. Uh, and, and bottom line is this village started to thrive off of a very small investment. And the village became more independent and more self-sustaining because they had a way to do that. So, you know, it doesn't need millions of dollars. It just needs something simple that people can can become self-reliant with. That's true. That definitely can help people individually and in and, and small communities. In our book, we focus on the things that actually can, can scale and become really big opportunities just sure, because sure. they create so many jobs and um, they create the infrastructure. You know, the, the, the effect of the community is enormous. But, yes, you're talking about sort of micro-investments, um, and I think that that is a force for good. Uh, we're talking about the things that are sort of a little bit are leveraged, you know, that they become really big really quickly and provide a lot more sort of prosperity to go around for all, like creating a mobile telephone network across Africa, the continent of Africa. Sure. That was an enormous growth opportunity that started with sort of seeing the opportunity and, and building from there. But, yes, you're right. Both, both parts of that play a role in creating economic opportunity for people. Sure, sure. Now, also, I want to go back to this, because in the prosperity paradox, you talk about the idea of finding opportunity in non-consumption. So talk about that. Explain what you mean by that. Sure. So most companies, when they look for you know, a new market, up for data. Like, what? how many people do we know are already buying this product or service or a, a, a typical, similar? What do we compare it to? You know, we're looking to find consumers and see, can we grow that group of consumers? So you're looking for how many people, I'll give you a great example, how many people in Africa 20 years ago had phones? Well, the only thing that existed across the continent of Africa in those days generally were landlines. And the numbers were very small. So if you decided where's the opportunity to grow phone service in Africa, you would say, well, the number of consumers we see is relatively small. So even if you grew a ton, you know, doubled that number, it's still a very small number. It's not a big opportunity. Maybe we shouldn't invest there. If you look in a different way, put on what we say, a new set of lenses, and you look not for consumers, but you look for non-consumers, people who are now at the moment not buying or using any product or service, but they still have a gaping need, a struggle, something that they would like to make better in their life, but there's no product that is affordable and accessible to them, so it's as if it doesn't exist. They are non-consumers, but that doesn't mean they can't become consumers. You just have to, rec you have to see and look for them differently. So in the case of mobile phones, for example, uh, a guy called Mo Ibrahim, who is a head of British Telecommunications Technology and that has owned successful uh, consulting firm who was originally from Sudan, uh, saw that in spite of the fact that the number of landlines in countries across Africa was very small, there were huge numbers of people who would be desperate for something they could afford and was mobile and didn't require putting landline infrastructure all over the country, um, all over the continent even. Um, so he recognized that non-consumption, the lack of consumers, 
in the area of potential mobile phone customers was enormous. And he was right. You know, with, he, set, he started to build the first mobile phone company uh, in various countries in Africa. Uh, and within six years, he was able to successfully sell it for himself for, you know, in the billions of dollars. It was seen as such a small opportunity from traditional standards. But when you look at it through the metrics of who is not consuming and would like to, it became suddenly an enormous opportunity. So that's the idea of non-consumption or non-consumers is to find not just who's already getting this, but like who's not getting it because there's no good alternative for them. And if I can create one, look at how big that market is. And he was right. Yeah. You know, that story reminds me of the, there's a, there's another story about this, you know, there's a shoe salesperson and, and they sent him to some place and he lands and he surveys the area and, and, uh, you know, he sends back a message, hey, these, these people don't wear shoes. Uh, I don't think this is going to be a good market for us. So he gets back on the plane and goes home. Well, another shoe salesperson lands on the same place, and, and, and he sends back a message, hey, nobody here is wearing shoes. This is going to be a gold mine. Right, and exactly. It's just being able to see the opportunity and, and, and sometimes that opportunity is, is uh, right before our eyes, but we're done to it. Exactly. If you're not looking for, you don't, you don't, you won't see something if you're not looking for it. And if you're not looking, if you're only looking for people that currently have a phone, you're going to see a very small audience. If you then change your perspective and say, who doesn't have a phone but would benefit from it at A and then B. So how do we have to make this phone or this service so that these people can afford it and, and make it accessible to them? then you have the beginnings of a market creating innovation. You have the ability to create something that can become a real game changer for a lot of people. Huge growth opportunity. Yeah, I love that. All right. Okay. In the prosperity paradox, you guys make a point that America was once an impoverished country. And I want you to talk about this and explain how innovation helped change America. Sure. So we, of course, from our perch of the year, you know, 2019, <laughs> think of America as the leader in so many things. And, and we're so privileged and we are so prosperous. And, you know, every generation of children does better than its parents. You know, we, we sort of forget a little bit how far we've come in such a relatively short span of time. In the 1850s, America's sort of data on number of people living in poverty, um, details about health, lifespan, um, children who had to work. We would rival like modern-day Bangladesh. America was not a prosperous; it was prosperous for some people, but by and large, 1850s America, certainly you know, leading up to and then post the Civil War, uh, there were really big pockets of poverty, and we've forgotten forgotten about that because it evolved so quickly through some of our great innovators who created our language, market-creating innovations that really changed America. One of my uh, favorite examples is uh, Henry Ford creating the automobile. Of course, the automobile existed originally for very wealthy, a toy, really expensive toy for very wealthy people. He realized that, you know what, a lot of people, if I could make it affordable and accessible, the Model T, one color, X price, um, a lot of people would choose to have an automobile to change so many things of their life, where they choose to live, where they are able to work, how they communicate with each other. And when he created and started to be successful creating the Model T, 
that actually had the, the knock-on effect of, well, he needed roads because people needed to be able to drive, and he needed roads to get to and from his factories, and he needed infrastructure, trains, and he needed uh, an ecosystem of other suppliers to the automobile industry. His initial uh, idea that we need to make automobiles affordable and accessible to people spawned, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs and economic opportunity for so many people. So, so with one idea, it, it totally changed what we've now come to realize is part of the essential fabric of America. Uh, and he was not alone. There were many, many innovators like that who in the, in the late 19th century all the way into the 20th century had these game-changing innovations that created jobs, created economic opportunity, created infrastructure. You know, we, we had very corrupt politics uh, for, at the turn of the century. Um, at the turn of the last century, not this current century, and well, you can debate that, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and and we forget that it, that with all of these, with America starting to thrive and boom through business, it was then that regulations got better. It was then that uh, the government actually started supporting rather than kind of just being a corrupt, you know, taker. It, all these things evolved very quickly in relative terms from a very impoverished America that to the America we recognize today. And America is a great example of what's possible in a relatively short span of time. Prosperity can be created. Yeah. And, and you know what? And yes, we can, like, like you said, we're sitting on top of our perch here at, uh, in 2019, but it's good to look back and remember where we came from because sometimes you know, our lack of humility, again, uh, helps us to overlook opportunities. We sometimes, you know, we not only do we miss opportunities, but we also overlook people and, and things of that nature. So I think it's good to sometimes look back and realize, hey, we weren't always America. At one point, as you mentioned, we were a third world country, too. We were. And also, as a reminder, then, it does take a little bit of time for this to take hold. So it's not reasonable to expect the most impoverished parts of the world to suddenly start doing business fully like America and having all the institutions we have and having economic opportunity. It's a build. And so you ha America started slowly and got things wrong a lot before it got things right. And, and so expecting um, to sort of just export all of our best practices in other parts of the world is not realistic. They have to be sort of homegrown with the needs, with the market needs, with the creation of new products and services. That's where you start to become successful in changing government and in institutions and, and laws and even corruption. That, that evolves over time when it's, when it's led by market-creating market, market creating innovation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, I'm excited, uh, Karen, for your book, The Prosperity Paradox, and I apologize for my a uh, total, uh, what do you call it, disconnect. Very grateful. Very interest anyway. No problem. Thank, no thank problem you. Thank you. And, and, and I do love How Will You Measure Your Life. It's, it is a great book. And, and, and anyway, it got, uh, it got the best of, the better of me. But anyway, the book, The Prosperity Paradox by Clayton Christensen and Karen Dillon and Ifosa Oyomo. That's close enough. I'll say, yeah, better than I do. Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> but you were close. You're pretty good. Okay. Anyway, just remember the paradox, the prosperity paradox. Pick it up uh, your, wherever you got, like to pick up your favorite books. Karen Dillon, thank you so much for stopping by 
looking forward to have you back again and having a more organized uh, discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. No problem. Good stuff there from Karen Dillon, best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author, uh, and the book, The Paradox, I'm sorry, The Prosperity Paradox. Pick it up. Check it out. I, I can tell you this. Having read some of their other works, it will not let you down. You will enjoy this book immensely, even though I have not uh, started it. I apologize. But bottom line, as you can tell, there are, there are a lot of great things uh, in this book. And, and it's, it's a fantastic idea of America once was an impoverished third world country. Bam, you know, a couple hundred years later, look where we're at. And then you look at the different opportunities that she talked about. In, in Africa with a micro insurer and, and, and the telephone uh, and all this other thing. So are you into innovation? Are you looking to maybe shift? Are you looking to maybe capitalize on something else? Then pick up the prosperity paradox. Share this episode with everyone you know. And remember, my friends, you were created to succeed.